Sunday the 21st of October 2012, Johnny Certain spoke to the Moot community at the Sunday evening service at the Guild Church of St Mary Aldermary, exploring the theme of the challenge of real discipleship. Johnny is one of the founders of the new monastic and missional community called the Earlsfield Friary in South London, and is currently trained to become a pioneer minister through the Church Mission Society and Cudston Theological College in Oxford. The Gospel reading is taken from... Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Uh, May I speak in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I'd like to read you a poem just to uh, reflect on together in the light of this idea of the challenge of real discipleship. It's wonderful just to uh, be able to be with you. It's a bit of a treat for me. I'm usually putting children to bed at this time of the day, so I get a pass on that one. Um, This poem is called Time in Front of the Mirror, and I think it... uh, speaks well not only to the gospel that we heard tonight but also to uh, this idea of the challenge of real discipleship. Uh, Feel free to close your eyes or just reflect as I read. Time in front of the mirror. The new day calls me to climb the hill to father time. I stir to find myself. The mirror seductively whispers as I pass her entrance. What do I see? What do I want to see? What do I need to see? With words, desire, echoing in my head, I begin the ritual of dressing up. 
conspicuous, conscious of this slippery slope of inadequacy. Finally made up, I head out. Shadow falls in behind me, slithering along as I walk into daylight. All the while, peeking through the cracks of my makeup is the self I am. Uncertain of my place in this performance and arrested by stage fright, struggling to act out my existence. I am a riddle without reconciliation, a sea of paradox in search of no shore. I hear with my eyes and I see with my ears. I am old school with new ways, ingenious yet foolish, an agnostic believer full of questioning faith. I'm alternative with the mainstream, a force of nature that blows where gale drives me. I charm like honey or snarl my unclean spit. Daylight's time is done now and shadow follows me into night. Father's time is suspended in twilight's mysterious cave. The moon gives no respite to shadow's taunting. Finally gone now in the dawn of relief, I seek my affirmation from faithful mirror. Craving her untruths like Turkish delight, as I pursue perfection. Once more she makes her demands in eternal fashion and I begin again the weary transformation. Shadow sneers at me through my reflection held fragile in the glass. Honesty retorts, seeing through mirrors smoke, ushering words that spill a bittersweet taste of welcome. The audacity of honest word rings out with brave acclamation. So true it cannot be. So absolute it makes me uncertain. Yet hope pushes me to dare. And I begin to hack at mirror's tree, cutting away the roots of uneasy alliance. I wait for lightning, certain she will strike now. But instead stillness comes. And from within her strong grip, serenity greets me as friend. No more makeup, enemies make peace, shadow and light settle differences embraced in a pact of blood. There is no further debt to pay at the daily altar of the looking glass. I am swallowed by a greater portrait, caught in her glimpse. I see now the path on which I am becoming. Eternal hush dresses me in warm blanket of many colors, at last keeping out the bite of winter's cold displeasure. The challenge of real discipleship uh, as uh, a pilgrim myself on this journey is in my mind, to seek, find, and embrace the real self in the light of Christ. And in that becoming, which is a continual journey, the cliche is true, uh, offer our lives as a gift to humanity for the hope of a better world. And everything else is basically smoke and mirrors. Just smoke and mirrors. And so, as the poem suggested, it's the idea of that discovery, ongoingly, that we quest 
before that we can be the truest gift to humanity. Um, one of my confessions is that we, we are gluttons for television on a usual Sunday night. We, we start generally with uh, the results of um, Strictly Come Dancing. Uh, my sons do their dancing, which looks more like a break dance than a whatever they do. And uh, we all sort of lament the ageism of Johnny Ball getting thrown out on the first night and think that why should the over 70s suffer? Um, but in the end, the boys go to bed and we move on to mature television, <laughs> which is basically uh, like most of the uh, people sitting in, in their lounges on a Sunday night, either Downton Abbey or if you want something a little bit more gritty, Homeland and uh, something to do with the Americans' obsession with terrorism. And uh, I've opted to say a little bit about Downton Abbey because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a great fan of Julian Fellows, who's the inspiration behind uh, this particular piece of drama. And actually lying just beneath the surface of uh, the costumes and the upstairs-downstairs culture is, is something he's really trying to critique, I think. He's, he's, he's a clever man, and I think he's trying to traject some ideas. If you actually look at the characters, and forgive me if you don't know them, but take my word for it, there are everything from civil rights, gay rights, women's rights, national rights, being critiqued through various different characters in a post-Victorian era. And uh, really, I think though I don't know the man and not heard him say this, is trying to critique all of those things in the light of a contemporary society and say, actually, does the upstairs, downstairs culture really still exist within the, the society that we are a part of and the communities we're part of today? And Mark 10, this passage we've just read, uh, really is seeking to address some of this idea of uh, a lack of equality, a lack of some of the uh, virtues and substance of what the kingdom of God is about when we pray heaven to earth, this idea of justice and righteousness and mercy and uh, a more equitable world, if you will. And so here you have James and John really back all the way to ancient history asking the same questions about position and power. And of course, in ancient history, as is probably true today, uh, but a different metaphor, if you stood at the right or the left of uh, the king or the ruler, you were the hand of the king, to quote Games of Thrones, which is another drama series <laughs> I get caught up in. Um, so you, you see that they were, they were asking for something to do with power. And Jesus, in typical fashion, uh, answers their question uh, by subverting what that actually looks like. And he talks about this idea of uh, taking on the nature of a servant. And I, I want to think about that. And by that, I don't mean talking about uh, increasing our sort of skewered Protestant work ethic to do better or do more or try harder, as my school reports used to often say. That's not really what I'm driving at here because I think in the end that well will run dry and we just end up feeling knackered. Uh, so I'm not, really, I'm not really trying to advocate that 
as much as I'm trying to say, what is Jesus getting at when he's talking about the nature of a servant? In the same way that in Philippians 2, in verse 6, he talks about uh, Jesus was in very nature God, but did not consider this equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the nature of a servant. So what are these characteristics of a servant? Going back to Downton Abbey for a moment, I think that you can find the wonderful picture, albeit somewhat flawed through the Edwardian lens, of a servant. And what really fuels the duty of a servant through the life of Mr. Carson? Now, if you don't know Mr. Carson, he's the chief butler in this drama of the upstairs-downstairs world of Downton Abbey. And he's a very austere and sober man, and yet actually... Behind his sense of duty, something else drives him. And as the stories begin to unfold, downstairs and upstairs, we discover that this is a man driven actually by the power of love. His love for the family, his love for those people who are his co-workers, his romantic love for the lady of the house, Mrs. Hughes, which has just happened last week, rather to our surprise. And uh, so here is a man who is actually fueled by love and not duty. His duty comes from the origin of love. And I think in its, in its deepest sense, the nature of a servant is about having a heart of love. That's why Jesus said, as he, as he finished the sentence, that it's about laying down your life. And I guess that is the greatest act of love. We've heard more contemporary stories of people who have literally given their life for other people. It's an incredible act of love. And this is so important to grasp because without love we're blind. And so as we think of wanting a better world or another world being possible to this one, it's impossible to imagine it, let alone see it in everyday life and the needs of others in everyday life if we are without love. We will not see the woman in the library with her horde of children who are making the most unbearable noise in a place that's supposed to be a place of serenity and quiet. We will not see that she's just arrived in the neighborhood and is in sheltered accommodation because of a domestic violence scenario. We will just judge her children. We will not see the man that we go past every day on the train and back again as we come home who's selling a big issue so that he can obtain a European driving license so that he can go back to the Bucharest suburbs and set up a micro-enterprise as a taxi driver ferrying people to and from the markets and so sustaining his family. We will not see the old man who walked down our road we hadn't seen him for a while, to discover he'd been poorly and had sat alone in his bed for five days, not talking to a living soul. We will be blind to all these scenarios if we have not love. And so to have love, we have to receive it as well as being able to give it. And I think, just to close, the greatest illustration of this in, in uh, the gospel narrative is... is uh, Zacchaeus. Here is this unruly little man in every sense who is creaming off the top of people's taxes and everybody dislikes him and he's uh, described as unpleasant and yet deep within him 
is a desire for something really that we could describe as to be loved. And so when he hears that Jesus is coming down the road, he climbs a tree to try and get a, a, get a picture to see Jesus. And yet the beauty of the story encapsulates everything about who God is in Christ to each of us. Because before he can even see Jesus, just like the prodigal story, Jesus sees him. And he reaches out to him and calls him by name and invites himself to tea in British culture. I don't know what that looked like back then, but a cup of tea sounds nice. Next thing we know, Zacchaeus is giving his money away and dispensing all his, his capital gain and is committing his life to others. He was blind, but now he sees. He sees because his life has been filled with an unconditional love described once by Brennan Manning when he said, you know, even if your intellect denies it and your emotions refuse it and everything in your being resists you, God is a pursuing God of love. And so we finish saying, be still as in the chant and know that I am God, Psalm 46. And stillness is hard to come by in this world. But somehow that stillness needs to begin within our own hearts. That interior life that the contemplative so speak of. That as we still our own lives and make space for the love of God in the ordinary and the everyday. So as God fills up the well of our heart, we hope and pray that we will have eyes to see. To be compassion, to be love to others for the sake of a better world. The challenge of real discipleship is to seek, find, and embrace the real self in the love of God and offer our life as a gift to humanity for a better world. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Moot Community Podcast. If you'd like more information on who we are and what we do, please visit www.moot.uk.net. Thank you.